Meandering in the margins of medicine, it's the Short Coat Podcast. Weird news, fresh views, helpful clues, and interviews. By students, for students. Subscribe to our weekly show at theshortcoat.com. Welcome back to the Short Coat Podcast. I'm Dave Etler, but that's not important right now. What is important are my co-hosts. Say hello, listeners, to Matt Wilson. Hey, thanks for having me. Say hello to Levi Endelman. How's it going? Say hi to Cole Chaney. Good afternoon. We've got a newbie on the show, Tarek Karam. Thank you for having me here today. It's a broadcast. <laughs> Never goes well. <laughs> <laughs> Never goes well on the show. Lucky you, listeners. We're at the end of Valentine's Day week. You probably noticed love is in the air. The big question then is, what do medical students do on Valentine's Day aside from gripe that the heart-shaped boxes of candy are not anatomically correct? <laughs> Gentlemen, any special Valentine's in your lives? Oh, I do, and I feel so guilty because I didn't get a chance to do anything to show that I uh, care for them. Do you blame that on medical, do you, you medical know what, school, or, do so, you, or are you just lame? No, so so mine's a long-distance relationship, oh, okay. and then we sort of verbalized, oh, you know, we'll just kind of skip it this year because I'm going to see you soon because you're going to visit. Mm-hmm. And then I get a surprise package in the mail oh, the day of. That God. I, oh. And then I opened it and it's just a little chocolate hearts everywhere. This cute note and a new workout outfit because mine had gotten a little tattered. And then I called to thank them. And then I them? realized. Them? Well, her. Okay. And then I realized I didn't do anything weird. like that. And she's going to soon realize it. And then. She may change her mind about coming at that's the end a, of the month. Yeah. Do you want to do you want to say something on the show to make up for it? Do you know? Do you want to? I'm sorry that <laughs> I. The word starts with an L. It's four <laughs> letters long. Anyways, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Um. Yeah. No. I. I it's, I'm. I'm gonna sympathize with you here because you know there was a sort of a tacit. There was a sort of agreement. It sounds like. That, I don't know. That didn't come through. That's a classic, like, we're not going to exchange gifts for Christmas this Th- year. That, that's and then, you know, you get one anyways. And see, it's like, my, well, I didn't yeah. get you anything. But, but see, this this gives... Okay, so my... my uh, as I've said many times in the show, I was sick when I in the 90s. My, my wife and I, my now wife and I had been dating for a month. At some point in my recovery, my mom said, you know, you should get something for Valentine's Day. And I was like, yeah, you're right. I should. So, uh, you know, we talked about what to get. My mom went off to the store. She brought back, uh, you know, something. I couldn't leave the bed or the hospital. So so she brought something back and um, uh, I gave it to my wife, my, my girlfriend. And and she's like, yeah, I don't do Valentine's Day. <laughs> and I was like, score. <laughs> and it wasn't a test. But well, here's the thing. Every person I have, you know, so every, so every year people go, hey, Dave, uh, what are you going to do for Valentine's Day this year? And they're expecting me to be like, oh, I'm going to shower my wife with gifts and we're going to get and I'm like, we don't do Valentine's Day. And they're like, you know, that's a test, don't you? And I'm like, well, if so, it's a, it's been like an 18 year long to 20 year long test. Now, it's a lifestyle. I think I must be failing. It's a longitudinal study. <laughs> exactly. So uh, I think I'm safe, everybody. I think Although I'm safe. Dave told me you didn't celebrate Valentine's, but you did something pretty cool last week. Well, her uh, her birthday was on the 13th, so we did go to the Ben Folds concert in Cedar Rapids. Pretty hip. Pretty nice. pretty darn cool. So, um, so, so yeah, 
you kind of lucked out though then that that your wife isn't into valentine's day because you'd have like double double whammy oh yeah 13th she's 14th yeah she's a very reasonable woman i chose Uh, well yeah nice (laughs) i love you christine wow yeah it's powerful <laughs> Tark, you taking notes over there? Uh, yeah, yeah, I got it. Here's uh, I got my Surface Pro out. And just did you out. send something like app like right after you open that package? Did you like hop on Amazon like, and you, prime like a drone? DHA. To- okay, okay, a, cu- a couple of things. One, I did call and they statically show my you know gratitude. Sure. And two, right, my birthday is on the fifteenth, so it was oh, like man. a two in one gift. So if anything, I kind of got chipped out because <laughs> there's both Valentine's Day and there's the fifteenth, which yeah. is my birthday. So. <laughs> Yeah, that's. that's that, I think that's that's maybe part of why Christine doesn't care about Valentine's Day because her birthday is just before that. Right. So, so. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna pretend that it was way a to birthday play the gift. victim card. I, there I you like go. That. Yeah. That's good. Well, <laughs> well, um, got we got some feedback from a listener this week. It's my favorite part of the show. Along these lines, um, we uh, we heard from Naomi in Maryland. Let's listen to her her uh, call. I short code. My name is Naomi, and I'm calling from the beautiful state of Maryland. Um, I wanted to call in for two particular reasons. One, I love your podcast. I've been listening for, what, three months? And I feel like I've listened to every episode twice now. So just keep doing what you guys are doing, and I will be a fellow short coach come August. Congratulations. And um, from listening to your podcast, I feel like I have all the tips and tricks and secrets that I need to kind of get through this journey. Um, my second reason is because in light of Valentine's Day, I wanted to give a special shout-out to Cole Cheney. He is so cute. I love his voice. I love his opinions. And... Um, if I had known about a cold Cheney before I applied, I might have applied to Iowa. Oh. But um, I just wanted to let you guys know that keep doing what you guys are doing and keep it up. Thank you for your call, Naomi. Um, that was an emotional roller coaster. I really it, thought she was going to say that she was coming here in the fall. I thought that's I, what she was That's kind of what I thought at first, but then when I re-listened, I'm like, oh, no, she's going somewhere else. <sighs> um, Cole, this is a first. I'm flattered. For the show. Totally flattered. Uh, do you have a? Do you have an answer to Naomi's uh, declaration of love specifically? I would say a single rose for Naomi. No, oh. I watched The Bachelor. I would say thank you. <laughs> let's let's try this. Hold pretend on. pretend that Levi is Naomi. Okay. And and tell Levi, <laughs> Naomi, what you would say to her. Naomi. <laughs> I, I don't like that. A single rose. Um, I would say thank you. I would say you would have not regretted Iowa. Maryland's a beautiful state, but so is Iowa. Mm-hmm. And we have a great institution here. Come to Iowa. Mm. And then I would also say, I really appreciate the compliment. And um, some of the fellow white coats can be critical and they can be, they can undercut each other and they can outshine each other. And to be complimentary in nature is really cool and it makes me feel good. So don't lose that <laughs> when you go through the process because I take it as a very high compliment, but I'm sure you have that for other people. So spread that love. That was throughout. That was beautiful. Yeah. Um, don't you agree, Naomi? I 100% agree. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Naomi. Oh, hey, Cole. I really appreciate you calling in. <laughs> that was such a sweet little declaration. I really, really like that. I will take that with me and uh, take that rose. And uh, yeah, so thank you. <laughs> Can you say where you're going next year? Dartmouth. Nice. Awesome. Nice. Yeah. That's where my fr- Dartmouth, that's in uh, New Hampshire, right? 
Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, I, I thought because that's where my father went to PA school way back in they the day. They ski the White Mountains up there. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So, so what kind of doctor are you going to be, Naomi? I have no clue at this point. I feel like I've bounced back between like hospitalist medicine and trauma and cardiology. I'm probably going to end up being like a pediatrician or something. I have no clue. So we will see. It's all right. That's, I mean, at this stage, all you got to know, I think, is that you're going to go. Exactly. Because there's so much, there's so much that you don't yet know. Right, right. About so, um, about the specialties and about all that kind of stuff. How about the show? So you said you've listened to every show about twice. What turned you on to the show and what kept you listening? So, uh, Other than Cole's even, beautiful face. We need to know exactly, this. Well, right, exactly, right. <laughs> Added bonuses. Uh, um, I found the show on um, Student Doctor Network. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, cool. Like, let me try something different for my um my commutes to work i drive about like an hour to work every day mm. so i forgot what the first episode i watched was it was something about like residents and like um depression or something like that okay. and yeah. i was like okay that's that's pretty cool like i like what they're talking about so i just started like going through all of the episodes cackling to myself on my way to work like it's a great show. Besides Cole's voice, it's amazing. Like Thank you. you guys are top notch. Thank you. Would you do something <laughs> like this? In school? Um, no, probably not. I like I'm nervous to hear what I sound like. So I feel like I would be too cringy and like it it would be weird to hear myself on a podcast. No. See, I, I know I everybody thinks and 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 I get it. I've been listening to my own voice for so long that I that <laughs> that I don't experience this anymore. There's no disconnect for me. You get used to it. Yeah. Um so, you know, if you want to start a show in the future, I strongly recommend it. It will change your life. Why don't we do a show where we do the same thing we used with the undifferentiated guy, but use Naomi? What oh my god. Please don't. You know what I mean? No. What do you mean? I'm not as interesting. We use the podcaster app that um what did we do on the last episode when we remoted the guy in? Oh, we tried that today. It didn't work. Oh, it didn't work at all. <laughs> work. Okay. We couldn't get it to work. <laughs> all right. No, no, no. Okay. Anyway. Just start one at Dartmouth then. Yeah, dude. Start one at Dartmouth. Suggest it. Find a, find a crew. Find a, a crew. find a, uh, a sympathetic staff member. Do what, <laughs> you know, like do what you got to do and start doing it. Because I'll tell you what, I, for, from my perspective, it makes me happy at the end of, at the end of every week to have a chance to sit down with uh, people who I now consider my friends and right. and talk about um, you know whatever craziness happened in the week or right or whatever they're like artsy and like humanities e up at Dartmouth right? are they uh, yeah they're pretty artsy yeah. up there I feel like that'd yeah. be an easy sell you know yeah definitely yeah. pretty artsy well you know so the the thing <laughs> the thing is is that um, you know without so I think the only reason the show exists still is because a um, well, just because you know, there's somebody like me on board who is can can be fired if the, <laughs> if things go south. There's a head that can roll. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so you know, that's why you got to get staff buy-in, maybe. But you know, or you could just do it on your own. You could you could do it on your own and have you know no problems whatsoever. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, if you did it as part of your medical school experience, if you integrated it with your medical school experience, then you know. Then you then you get an extra leg up in terms of Naomi's like, why are you telling me this? I don't want to. <laughs> no, I, I told like, you already. It. I don't want to do no. this. No, no, no. I'm, I swear. Like, I love life advice, so I'm taking it in. All right. 
it's just it, it's just a good way to keep track of what's going on in the outside world i think and yeah. you know and connect with other people outside your institution outside your experience yeah what would you tell all the aspiring white coats you're probably the freshest into oh medical God. school give them a little Jeez. tidbit who Ugh. naomi naomi tell she's the, not even there yet that's what i'm saying but I'm she's in she got in yeah oh okay so i see we're in the club how you, now how'd you get in what was your secret <laughs> God, I don't think I had a secret. I have always been somebody who's really good with like my words and writing them in a way that is captivating. So mm. I think honestly, what got me in the door um, was my essays. And I just didn't, I wanted them to, my goal was to make them want to have a conversation with me. So mm. I think if you're applying to school this year, definitely take those essays, the secondaries, um, the activity section, take it all so seriously because I got so many compliments on my writing on the interview trail. And that's not something that you think they'll compliment you on. You know, you think they'll talk about your research or your clinical experience or your GPA, your MCAT, but you know, they were like, you have a way with words and you're really good. I like the way you write your essays and such and so forth. So I think trying to stick out with the way that you write is like an underhanded, um, upper hand what did, what did you what, what did you write about in my personal statement yeah. um so the way i framed it was that you know um basically like medicine for me was kind of superficial mm -hmm. in high school like you know i did well i was president of this club and that club and i was like you know what i'm smart doctors are smart like that's how it should be so I kind of had to come from being superficial for it to being genuine. So I kind of took it, took the reader through the different stages that I went through. Mm -hmm. um, and I tried to frame it in like a story like kind of way without yeah. spitting out my resume. Good so advice. That's yeah. good advice right there. You want to tell a story, yeah. you want to engage people. Yeah. Oh, good. Well, congratulations on your <laughs> impending uh, matriculation. Thank at, you. At Dartmouth. Sounds like, uh, sounds like Dartmouth's made an excellent choice. <laughs> I hope so. Um, if it occurs to me, if it occurs <laughs> to you between now and the time you graduate or, you know, throughout the rest of your life, you know, <laughs> give us a call. Okay. Like literally ever. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. give us a call. We'll, we'll be here. Ask us questions. Uh, we love to hear from listeners and, uh, and it was great talking to you. Thanks, Thank Naomi. Guys. Bye, guys. Good Bye. luck. Bye. Dave, you pulled a fast one there. I did, huh? That's like the Been third. thinking about that all week. Remember the third party <laughs> line when you'd have two people talk and yeah. then they wouldn't know there was a third person on the line? <laughs> but that was that was uh, much appreciated, though. More calls. Fun. I think listener calls are the best part of the show. They are. Yeah. They yeah. are, because we could talk about a lot of things. You know, whatever I can, you know, pull out of my butt for, you know, a given <laughs> week. But uh, but I want to hear from our listeners. So uh, because they help us figure out what I mean, if you call us and tell us what you want to talk about, well, mm -hmm. that's the best possible scenario. So if you want to give us a call, uh, do so. Three four seven seven four six seven eight two eight. That's three four seven short CT. You can also email us at uh, the shortcoats at gmail dot com. Bunch of different ways to get in touch with us um, to to do that. Um, I called a love line once. Like a like the love line, like Adam Kroll and Doctor Drew. <laughs> I'll send. I'll put, we'll post a link on it. Okay. I called, 
I was so nervous. Like I've been doing this podcast for four years. I did high school radio. I have like twelve years of radio experience. Uh-huh. And I got on. I was like, um, Adam, <laughs> Drew. I was so nervous. And I asked him this question. But then when I re-listened to it, you kind of sound normal. I think so many people come on thinking they're going to sound weird or strange or nervous. Yeah, you- and then you listen to it, and it's like it's kind of just you. Yeah. Well, that's the experience I've had getting up in front of people and talking. Like you feel terrified and. And you later you're like you say to a friend like so I, I felt terrified how did I sound and they were like I didn't notice you were terrified. Well, all right. Look, I've made no secret of the fact that I'm a middle aged man, <laughs> surrounded by come clean, Dave. surrounded bright. <laughs> you guys are young and spry, filled with vim and vigor, so you don't fully understand the hell that is getting older. There are some uh, consolation prizes like you get to watch a lot of Fox News. That's nice. <laughs> I can paint with a broad brush. But this week, I learned something new. When you get old, you get to smell like old fried hamburgers. Mm. Mm. Uh, this is actually kind of an old article, but it, uh, it was pointed out to me by uh, John Pienta. Uh, an article in the Journal of Investigative Dermatology, which is it's an interesting name, Investigative Dermatology. Isn't it all... Isn't anything published in a journal sort of investigative? Anyway. <laughs> tell, uh, so this article tells me that old people smell is real, and it's perhaps caused by the oxidation of omega-7 fatty acids into 2-nonanol, the body odor of subjects 25 to 75 years of age was analyzed by some fancy device, had space gas chromatography slash mass spectrometry, and 2-nonanol was detected only in subjects over 40 years old. It's an aldehyde that has an unpleasant, greasy, and grassy odor. (laughs) I hate life. So how old are you right now? 45. 46. On the cusp. 46. Over 40. I got that two na-na-na-na-na-na-all. Coming right from my pores. Maybe. In your clinical education, have you guys learned about subarea keratosis yet? These guys are. I don't actually know. So these are those dermatologics. <laughs> I don't know if we learned about it. The, it. It's a thing that you'll see on old people. It's common. It's benign. But the common term they'll say is "greasy stuck on appearance." Is always that sort of buzzword you'll see. But it's just funny. You combine this appearance of a greasy stuck on wart along with a hamburger smell, and you are just a full grease ball. Yeah. After forty. It's it's a, ter- it's, a ter- it's a terrifying <laughs> thought. Start putting on ketchup instead of cologne every morning. I, I know. Do you, have you smelled? Is old people smell a real thing? I know that I realized it when I went to Europe and met some of my mother's side because she, her grandma was there and she has her older sisters. Mm-hmm. And my father's side is actually all younger. And I still started noticing. And I was wondering if it was like a Europe thing or it was an old people <laughs> thing. So I, was like, <laughs> Europeans. I was like, is it a Europe yeah. thing? That, or, or I don't know. But, um, well, yeah. You ever go into like a like a nursing home or I have. something like that? Yeah, you kind of get a little bit of it. <laughs> I worked I've, in one for two years. It, yeah. Yeah. I've never really <laughs> noticed it until I read this article. And then this week, I was at a middle school concert, and I, I sat next to a gentleman who, I mean, there was just this very strong, greasy odor. And... So before I'd read this article, I might have been a little less um, sympathetic, I guess. Uh, but when, but after, I, but having just read this, literally the day before, maybe the, the day or two before, 
um, I was suddenly like, oh my God, this could happen to anyone. You know what I'm saying? But it was, um, it was quite awful. Can it be endearing though? Because your Nana smelled like it? Like no. this, okay. <laughs> it's totally negative. No. I gotta say having smelled this greasy hamburger isn't what I would have first attributed to that smell. It's like mothbally is what yeah, I would say. Is a, that. Oh yeah. I don't know. It probably smells different to different people. I, I, I would think because people don't react the same way uh, perceptually. So, there's that old timey deal where the the doctors would test for diabetes by tasting the urine and see oh, if, yeah. you know, yeah, taste for sugar for yeah. glucosuria. I think smelling old people could also be maybe part of the physical exam going forward. Wasn't there? Uh, I remember <laughs> reading something about uh, what is it diagnostic for? As my father would say, too many birthday syndromes would be like <laughs> the only thing. There, I, I think I remember reading something about uh, they trained like a some type of dog like a german shepherd or something to be able to smell alzheimer's and oh sure like a really high sensitivity and specificity yeah. it's like pretty impressive yeah a really stage <laughs> alzheimer detection. well it's getting old sucks i just it just seems like there's not a lot of good about it well you get a couple of new party tricks what's that you get a couple of new party tricks <laughs> explain <laughs> Like taking no. your dentures out or something? Well, yeah. yeah like, well, for, for me, it's my left knee uh, clicks and clacks. Oh, there so, you go. So if, uh, if you put me behind, you know, a shroud and I can just pretend to be a horse by just clacking my knee. <laughs> yeah, you know. wow. guess, guess the animal. Oh, no, it's just an old person. <laughs> um, my, my grandfather had a glass eye. Whoa. Uh, in, in his later years, he would forget and leave it in the sink, which was odd. Oh, I want to talk about dentures for a sec. Well, who doesn't? I just learned about this prophylactic teeth pulling. So the College of Dentistry here, I just I was speaking with some people over there, and they'll have patients regularly come in and say, uh, I'm a union worker at a plant. Uh, I fall off my insurance at age 55 when I retire. So what I'd like you to do is pull all my teeth and start making me dentures. And they'll, you know, the ethics of that is sort of like... Pull what? all my teeth. Because I lose dental care going forward. I have a history of caries, root canals, and I don't want to oh. screw with it, and I can't afford it anyway. So pull hmm. them all out now and give me a full set of dentures. Interesting. I mean, I uh, crazy, right? Yeah, I mean, I guess, but, like, people who are edentulists, they, uh, like, their their maxilla and mandible start, like, breaking down, right? And they Because you need the force of teeth in the bone to... Uh, like to Keep have it a bone there, sure. right? Yeah. So I, I wonder if that would like lead to more uh, breakdown of the of the jawbone. Sure. Like trouble yeah. eating later yeah. in life. Right. And I mean, this goes along the same. You know, imagine you're a general surgeon, and a person comes and says, "You know, I'm going to lose health care at 50, so why don't you just take the appendix out right now? Just <laughs> save me the." I mean, there's a whole bunch of weird prophylactic things we could do, we don't do, but dentists do do this one. So I don't know. I feel like we should just give people insurance for. Their life. That's crazy. Time. Yeah. You have to do that kind of whoa, stuff. Whoa, whoa, wait <laughs> a minute, buddy. <laughs> we don't. <laughs> I mean, I, let's not go there. Or we could just pull out all of that our teeth. That is a pretty out, controversial yeah. statement. <laughs> so, how soon can I pull out all my teeth? <laughs> Tomorrow. We could you do nice it. teeth. I wouldn't pull we them out. We can do it today if you want. I got some tools. <laughs> tooth fairy can help me with the rent money. Yeah. Imagine. Dude, I don't know how much you're getting it's for like the tooth. Twenty-five dollars right there <laughs> at the Etler household rates. Your kids get twenty-five bucks for a tooth? No, that's oh. for all of them. Oh. <laughs> we have like thirty-five teeth, right? So oh, I thought it was twenty. Well, well I guess when they're old, when they're there. young, they have more teeth. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's if the tooth fairy remembers to arrive. <laughs> she's fickle. Yeah, she's got things to do. You know, like she maybe there's the there's a supply chain problem for her. I don't know, but. Um, I read an article this week about body donation 
Um, and it, it happens that uh, last semester, several of you were introduced to your so, so-called first patient. So it made me want to ask you guys about that um, experience. So, they, you know, they call it the first patient. It's a, basically a deeded body donated to the school by someone who made the decision to do something frankly amazing for medicine and medical education. Um, I mean, you know, sort of the benefits of of me donating my body to medicine and medic, medical educations may not be so obvious, but uh, but the donor gets to have a positive impact on a new group of people like yourselves who, uh, you know, sort of are learning the language and the waypoints of anatomy. But I never really considered the fact that donation means that a large portion of the costs associated with burial and cremation and things like that are taken care of, which is kind of a cool thing. Did what what? I guess I wanted to talk more about, though, what working with a, a deeded body was like for you guys. So for me, when I first started, I had a very, very, very hard time wrapping my mind around the idea that I need to focus on my studies and that I need to study and not, I mean, be emotionally attached and be appreciative, but at the same time, focus more on the fact that I need to get what I'm supposed to get. Mm-hmm. And I was very thankful that the school put on that um kind of quick nice of words at the beginning the deeded body the deeded body ceremony where they had read a quote from one of the one of the uh, people who had started a program and they had addressed it in a way that said if we don't do our part as a student we are not doing what the donors would want us to do which is honor their death by studying mm-hmm. and i think that's very very important that was kind of that pivotal moment because it was on the first day of class and the first week of school i already knew we were going to start and then I didn't know how to wrap my mind around this idea mm. because, um, I mean, you can just be looking at a donor and then you can take a look at this donor and he says, oh, this person unfortunately passed away from sudden death at the age of 45 or 46 or 50. And then be thinking, wow, my father is 50. So I'm in school. He can just right now possibly be, you know, gone, gone. Mm-hmm. And then to just wrap your mind around that, that this person at some point was walking, was talking, was eating, had a son, daughter, mother, father, had to pay bills, had to go to work and so forth. Now, all of a sudden, they're my homework in a sense was so, so difficult. But the way we address it here really made a big difference because every single time I went to class, you know, there were some people who complained that it's, the work was difficult. And all I thought was, I'm so thankful that this person decided to be a part of my education. I'm going to do my best, even though it's really, really difficult for me to learn all this at once and honor the donor. I'm going to try to do both. Hmm. That's beautiful. I mean, that's that's I think really that should, nice. That should be that message almost should be propagated. I think to people even thinking about it, because if they heard that, I think they'd be much more likely to donate. You know, if they're on the fence to hear how seriously you took it, what an honor it was that it enhanced your medical education. It's yeah. Pretty cool. You should say that on some sort of like radio show or something. Yeah, like <laughs> yeah. a yeah. Yeah. listen to yeah. platform, like a <laughs> podcast maybe. Wonder, yeah, it's weird. Um, yeah, I agree though, Derek. It's a, it's like. And I, they they like cover up the the head and the hands because those are like the parts that people really you know you you kind of like it's hard to to separate seeing those parts from like the humanity of the person but there is a sense in like which you you need to do that a little bit to be able to um, learn about physiology you know in general and it's it, it's it's like a weird dichotomy of like um, of keeping in mind that this was like a person who like like had their own you know full life just as full as yours is and and but also sort of separate that from like 
you know the academic side of like you know i need to find all these vessels and and like muscles and structures and and whatever um so yeah it's a it's like it's kind of weird and it's kind of hard but it's pretty cool it's like a once in a lifetime experience I i was thinking about that especially when we were doing the um neurodissection like unless you're a pathologist or maybe a neurosurgeon or something you'll never hold like a person's brain in your hand again even any you know other than those types of physicians like that'll probably never happen i guess yeah the transition for me was perhaps a little bit easier because i had had a little bit of cadaver dissection experience in undergrad actually uh we had a cadaver based anatomy lab in undergrad and then i i spent two summers working at a coroner's office so uh doing like autopsy medicine Hmm. and so but it, it was still very centering to the Dr. Pizzamenti's uh, talk uh, before we did our first dissection and sort of reframing that, you know, you know, despite any of your anybody's background that you come in with, you know, this is still a person and they donated their body for us to learn. That was their goal in doing that. And that's how we can honor their last wishes is by learning it everything that we can from them. I think it's interesting too, that, you know, there've been a number of, you know, so acquire, you know, getting enough bodies to teach medicine is difficult. It's, it, you know, it's, it's, it's not an easy thing as you guys alluded to earlier. And, and, you know, every few years, you know, we hear, Oh, there's this new virtual reality mm-hmm. s- simulation thing that we could be using. In fact, a lot of schools use some, um, you know, sort of tabletop, displays to explore anatomy um it's not something we've i mean we we have access to those things but it's not something we've really fully embraced as an alternative because there's just no substitute i think it sounds like yeah dr hoffman was involved with building cyber you know the cyber anatomy thing that we use which is a great tool to have as sort of a um a, a a use you know a malleable reference it's not just pictures in a book you can actually go in and and like move things around and it's in 3d and whatever but it's yeah like you said i mean it's no substitute for the real thing it, i would it, say if you were going to go to a medical school and they told you that they were going to replace cadaver dissection with anatomy with a you know some kind of um cyber anatomy uh tool entirely that would be a reason to like not go there mm-hmm. and go somewhere else mm-hmm. I, d- I would agree with that it's hard too. I, that's the one thing I think yeah. it's cool, but it's challenging. It's um, physically taxing mentally. It's incredibly challenging to learn all the structures. Mm-hmm. It, uh, it's inconsistent. A lot of bodies are different. There's variation. There's also life yeah. factors that have affected these people. Um, and so that's the other half too, is it just get you ready for medicine because it's kind of weird and it kind of smells and it's really hard. And um, I'd say it was frustrating more days than not. I'd left sort of being like, I don't feel like I found this or I couldn't find that. Or I, th- I think I snipped this like, so it's something in hindsight I think we can all look back favorably, but during it's a struggle. Like I think that needs to be disclosed as well. You know, that was that was a good point, you know, kind of in our first week I remember a lot of us were were like, you know, we're only dissecting one cadaver, but on our lab practical we're gonna be tested over all twenty five. How, how is that fair? Crazy. And they're like, Well, are you ever going to have a clinic where you just have one patient? <laughs> Get yeah. used to it. Or a robot patient that's anatomically perfect. <laughs> right. right. Or the arteries are red and the veins are blue and the nerves are yellow. Like this is all totally yeah. fantasy. It yeah. gives you a real appreciation for how, me- like not messy in the sense of like being gross, which it is a little bit, but um, just like how, how messy 
uh, anatomy and physiology is in 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 uh, in that it doesn't uh, it's not consistent across people. There's so much variation. There's so much um, you know little tiny structures, hidden places, and and things that stick together that shouldn't you know. And and you just have to understand that that's the way people are in, in reality. So and and if you're a pre med and you haven't gone through something like uh, Levi did with his uh, pre, you know undergrad anatomy course, which I, I'm, sounds unusual to me, but it's cool. Um, I remember having a an anatomy textbook. My as I said, my father was a PA, and he had uh, you know books like you know or journals or whatever. And Netters was often the illustrator. Netter right? uh. was an, an illustrator in there, and um, I never ever got the impression people were different. Oh yeah, you know, like I was always like, oh, well, this looks easy. You know, they're all in such great they're shape. All in such, and those, yeah, you know, they have low body fat and yeah. high muscle tone. Like, right. You just nope. don't get that impression unless you, <laughs> unless you've either you know spent the last seventeen years working in a medical. I keep exaggerating. Fifteen years working in a medical school, or you've gone through anatomy. Um, how different things are. Well, uh, I'll post the link to that article. I don't know. It's interesting. The uh, so-called ban on Muslims entering the United States has been stayed for the moment, but the possibility of its reinstatement is kind of creating a lot of uncertainty for uh, the U.S. medical system. And with Match Day coming up, there are even more potential problems, even if the ban turns into a slowdown or, you know, sort of extreme vetting kind of situation, which is something we hear a lot. So if you're an international medical graduate, I didn't fully realize this. You've got between Match Week and June to get your visa about 90 days um that might be, might not be long enough this year uh there are about 280,000 international medical graduates in the united states according to the ama so cole you're headed into match week yes what's your take on this on match week or travel ban in conjunction with like match week? The, the 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 situation for imgs um and sure. and the medical system um i mean do you look at this as like oh well I, you know i've got a leg up now because there's fewer people trying to, maybe fewer people. Uh, well, I don't know if yeah. there are fewer people trying to match. That's the thing. There might be fewer people who end up here. So my understanding of the match process is that um, there is a decent proportion of international medical graduates who will be entering primary care specialties. So a lot of unfilled spots that go to uh, especially such as family medicine, internal medicine, pediatrics, um, even other specialties as well, maybe less desirable areas, have a decent proportion of international medical graduates. So these are people that are going to be serving um, people in dire need of medical care. Um, my understanding, too, is that a lot of these uh, predominantly Muslim nations do produce a large proportion of these people. So um, these are I wondered about that because I wasn't sure. Yeah, so yeah. if you look at a typical program, you'll see people from Sudan, you'll see people from... Um, Syria. I mean, these are medically literate and also educationally focused countries that do produce a decent amount of um, doctors every mm -hmm. year that do want to practice in the United States. So um, I think from a student side, maybe it is a short term win in that maybe your competition goes down. I mean, I think that's maybe the logical thing is that there's fewer people entering a system. And so your stock naturally gets pushed up on the flip side, though, in terms of patient care delivery, there's fewer people to deliver care. And so yeah. uh, my understanding is there's a physician shortage. Um, we're doing certain things to fix with NPs, PAs, um, and also international graduates. But on the flip side, um, I don't know if, if there's enough people to fill that gap without international medical graduates. 
I have read that there are um, certain uh, people applying for residency spots that will send like a email or a letter to programs being like, you know, just to clarify, I'm not affected by this or, you know, I, this is, I will have no problem getting, which is like kind of sad that they have to well, um, yeah, but specifically you, send a letter being like, you know, leave, hey, leave me out of this. Don't love me in with these, you know, this group of people who may have a difficult time if if you accept them actually take taking the spot it's a valid thing to do especially because i read this week that even some u.s citizens are having difficulty getting back into the country if they leave like there was a scientist named uh, sid bikanavar i have no idea if i'm pronouncing that right who was born in the u.s works for the jpl nasa's jet propulsion lab and was returning uh was detained returning from chile he'd been where he'd been racing solar powered cars as one does <laughs> Um, <laughs> that's his hobby. But when he returned, Customs and Border Patrol agents insisted that he unlock his JPL-issued phone, and he did not want to do that because he's not allowed to do that by the U.S. government. So here's one arm of the U.S. government contradicting the security needs of the other arm of the U.S. government. JPL rules prohibit allowing others to access his phone. So he was detained for a while until he finally knuckled under and agreed to un. Uh, unlock his phone and then he had to you know he had to tell JPL and he had to get a new phone and all this kind of stuff so that that's uh, you know I guess sending a message to potential programs beforehand saying you know this is going to work out for me if you decide to go with me you know it's not a bad choice. I mean, there's got to be a lot of confusion out there for residency program directors and things yeah. like that. So, and it's you know it's interesting too, Cole, that you said that, it, and it is true that a lot of uh, these physicians coming from uh, you know international medical graduates or foreign medical graduates um, serve as part of the deal of them uh, coming to the country. They they serve after they graduate medically underserved populations in rural areas, and those same areas are a lot of. Uh, the same areas that voted for a policy, you know, either this policy or one like it, whatever you want to say, mm -hmm. which is, you know, I mean, it's what they wanted. Yeah. And, and so they're, they may end up cost costing them. Yeah. I, it's kind of a cruel irony, I guess. This actually affects a group of medical students that we often forget about. Mm. Um, it, we have a couple of offshore schools and a good number of their student body are actually U.S. citizens and a good number of that U.S. citizen population at those offshore schools are actually from either Middle Eastern countries or they may be Muslim from, you know, yeah. other countries. And those programs are set up so that you would do your two years of book work offshore, but then you come back to do your two years of clinical work in the U.S., take the same U.S. MLEs and so forth. Mm -hmm. And those students who are, some of them might right now be completing their second year, getting ready to either come to California or Alabama or Florida or somewhere to do their second two years of school, can't. Mm -hmm. And then that's, can you imagine if you know us going through our second year of school halfway? We're told, "Yeah, you're gonna, you you can't continue." Yeah, and so this is, uh, and th are these mostly Caribbean schools? Yeah, so yeah. like St. George Ross University. Mm. I mean, yeah, and, and and Caribbean schools sometimes get a bad rap from people in the from people in the U.S. Mm -hmm. because they're a lot of them are for profit schools, I gather, yep. and um, but one advantage to allowing them into the country to or you know allowing them to practice medicine in, in this country is that they end up for whatever reason 
they end up practicing and doing a really good job for rural and underserved communities. So um, it's a difficult time. It has shown the spotlight on just how much the U.S. medical system relies on uh, foreign or international medical graduates, which, you know, if there is a silver lining to be had, I think that could be it, you know, the people are more aware that that's the case than they may have been in the past. And it just goes to show just, you know, related to this issue, just how multifactorial it is. It's not just a national security issue that, you know, there, there's going to be ripple effect throughout just about every sector of the, of the United States uh, workforce and economy that we, we wouldn't really know about until it happens. We can speculate all we want, but you know, it's going to affect Everyone and everything. Good point. There is an event coming up at the Carver College of Medicine <laughs> that I heard about called Doc Dash. Do you want to tell us about Doc Dash, Tarek? Yeah. So every year, and I think it's been going on for almost 25 years now, um, the University of Iowa Doc Dash, it's a 5K run. It's fun. It's for all ages. And then kids who come here also have their little mini Doc, doc Dash shorter run. And the point of this event is to raise funds for the uh, University of Iowa's mobile clinic and free clinics and free mental clinics. And uh, basically, there's a large portion of our you know, population that are still in areas where they have very, very low access to medical health. And what DocDash does, is it raises the funds that then pays annually for these programs. So in a sense, if DocDash was to not happen, the following year, they would be $0 that can go in to allow some medical access to some of these underserved communities. Hmm. So if you're interested in either running for DocDash or participating in DocDash, you can just go to uidocdash.com. There's a lot of information there, both about the clinics and what type of volunteers they need, as well as the event, what type of volunteers we need, and a way for both you to sponsor it by either being a runner or if you're generous enough and have the capability to actually donate directly to the event. And then we have a lot of uh, companies that are local that are donating. We have some faculty that have you know, stepped up and encouraged their department to also participate. And it all goes towards just funding the cost of these um, free clinics. And and just to kind of clarify, all of the physicians and employees that work at these clinics is all volunteer-based. These costs go things such as the medical supplies that are needed to sort of be able to give um, uh, some medical care to some of these very, very underserved communities. What's the date again? Did you say that? So the event is occurring on April 8th. And if you go right now to uidocdash.com, you can pre-register and have a chance to win a t-shirt and a $5 Java gift card. Mm-hmm. And then um, in a little while, our formal registration will open and it will give you a chance to register. And then come April 8th, you can come, have some good food, listen to some music, meet Herky the Hawk, go for a run. And then there's a couple of STEM activities. If you have kids, bring them along with you. We love to you know, show our kids, show the kids how great our medical school is here. Cool. uidocdash.com. UIDocDash.com, and that's D-O-C, DocDash.com. All right. Fantastic. That's our show. It's a quickie. Thanks, Dave. (laughs) Thank you, Levi, Tarek, Cole, Matt. Thank you so much for being on the show. And Naomi. (laughs) Thank you, Naomi. (laughs) Thank you, listeners, for making us a part of your week. We know you have other internets you could cram into your cranium, and we're glad you chose us. If you like what you heard today, consider sharing us with your fellow students and colleagues. We'd love to grow the show to the point where we can all quit our jobs. 
I don't think that's how it works. But anyway, you're, you're the only one who with a job here. If you have a <laughs> if you have a yeah, no, nah, I don't think it works. I don't know on this show. If you have a suggestion for something we should talk about, send it to the shortcodes at gmail.com. Leave us a message at three four seven short CT, and like our Facebook page, where most weeks I ask listeners to send in their thoughts on allegedly profound things. The show is made possible by a generous donation by Carver College of Medicine Student Government and the Writing and Humanities Program. Our executive producer is Jason Lewis. Our opening music is by Dr. Vox, and our closing music is by Argo Fox. Talk to you in one week. Yeah.